From the virtual newsroom of Impact Alpha, this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, June 18th. I'm Monique Aiken. Today, we're talking about Juneteenth, the newest national holiday, which is tomorrow. It's the date in 1865 that enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, learned they had been emancipated two years earlier. The end of slavery set in motion the 14-year period known historically as the Reconstruction. To reflect on Juneteenth, community lending, and today's opportunity for a just reconstruction, I'm delighted to have Lisa Mensa, CEO and President of the Opportunity Finance Network. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Monique. Thank you. Lisa helped make some headlines this week with the Historic Federal Support for Community Development Financial Institutions, or CDFIs, and an iconic snapshot is going around of you between Kamala Harris and Janet Yellen. It's it's the best snapshot. I, <laughs> I am absolutely thrilled. And more on all of that, but first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Agent of Impact Mackenzie Scott announced another multi-billion dollar tranche of donations to what she calls Teams Empowering Voices the World Needs to Hear. Impact Alpha readers and listeners to this podcast will recognize some of the recipients. Common Future, Social Finance, Kiva, and Souls Grown Deep, the Arts Foundation. In all, 286 organizations received a combined $2.7 billion from Scott and her husband, Dan Jewett. The policy drama around ESG continues. For pension fund managers, ESG was in under Clinton, out under Bush, in again under Obama, and out again under Trump. Now U.S. Senators Tina Smith and Patty Murray and Representative Susan Del Bene have introduced legislation to clarify that pension plan fiduciaries may indeed consider environmental, social, and governance factors in investment decisions. As Henry Schilling of Sustainable Research and Analysis writes in Impact Alpha, the legislation alone isn't enough to remove obstacles to the adoption of sustainable investing. Everybody wants catalytic capital. The New York Pooled PRI Fund is mobilizing flexible capital for nonprofits that provide social services in low-income neighborhoods by lowering transaction costs for foundations. Sea change Capital's John McIntosh writes on Impact Alpha that the fund is a model for getting impact-first capital off the sidelines. The Global Impact Investing Network's convening on climate financing also identified the need for catalytic capital. The Dutch firm Climate Investor One is unlocking institutional capital for clean energy project developers in emerging markets through a pooled refinancing fund. Some of the notable deal flow this week. G2 Venture Partners raised $500 million for its second sustainability fund. The Bay Area Venture Fund spun out of Kleiner Perkins a few years ago to invest in the modernization and greening of industries like transportation, agriculture, and energy. Tata Group, the Indian conglomerate, acquired a majority stake in 1MG, the online pharmacy. Earlier investors included Omidyar Network India, Sequoia Capital, and the Gates and Ford Foundations. And Micron, the Boise, Idaho computer chip company, is investing $50 million in Sealess Asset Management to use mortgage-backed securities to increase access to housing finance in underserved communities in Washington, D.C. and the San Francisco Bay Area. Impact Alpha readers got all of these stories and many more delivered to their inbox each morning in the brief. We'll be getting our first new federal holiday in Juneteenth. It has already been recognized by several dozen states, but this puts a federal holiday around freedom, justice, and equality right at the start of summer, or hashtag hot call summer to quote Stacey Abrams' latest initiative. And all this will help contextualize July 4th. In another Impact Alpha podcast series, we've been exploring the reconstruction, both the historical one and what Reverend Barber is calling today's third reconstruction. 
And Lisa, you had a guest post in Impact Alpha making the case that Juneteenth should be celebrated by all of us and for all of us. This is the day to reflect on and invest in the America we want to have for Black people, which in turn makes America that's better for everyone. So while we celebrate this federal holiday, we also acknowledge that Juneteenth means very little if we're not also actively working to close the racial wealth gap and end the persistent poverty that continues to stifle some Black, rural, urban, and Native communities. So what's your take on that? And, and we recognize your post was quite lovely today as well. Yeah, thanks so much. I loved making the connection between the Juneteenth holiday, which is about freedom and the shot at opportunity, and the things that I've dedicated my life to, which are really about closing the wealth gap, mm-hmm. um, the racial wealth gap, and really addressing persistent poverty, uh, which occurs in this very, very rich country. It's, it's deep poverty over 30 years, deep poverty of over 20%. So I, I loved making the connection that Juneteenth sort of gives us a shot at doing, which is saying that real liberation, you know, takes money, it takes fairly priced capital. Real liberation means you actually get to start to fight for your own life. And to me, that's so much uh, accelerated when you actually have a shot at capital. And it, it is the link of our fields to me. Oh, I fully agree. And I always like to say, justice cannot finance itself. And last June, Reverend Barber said about the holiday, how about we go further and pass healthcare and living wages for all, a fully restored Voting Rights Act and reparations. And please don't just ask for a holiday. Let's make it a holy day of repentance and reconstruction. And to quote another activist on Instagram, Zeli Imani, we didn't ask for Juneteenth to be a holiday. We asked for an end to police violence. To which I'd add, we need to end qualified immunity, which many civil rights groups have long been fighting for. And one of their latest actions was a letter to Congress sent on May 10th, signed by 89 such organizations. But let's focus on one step in the right direction that happened this week, the new federal commitment in support of CDFIs. So your iconic selfie is just one signal of more to come for CDFIs? It sure is. You know, this week we celebrated a congressional commitment to bring $1.25 billion to over 800 CDFIs of the thousand that are certified. And that's the first step in Congress's commitment. They, uh, what we have is a promise of $3 billion in grant resources, and we have a promise of another $9 billion in equity style investments. So that $12 billion was recognized at the end of last year. And it really is about getting the economy moving again. It's the Recovery Act money. And this first, they call it the rapid response. Those are precious dollars. And they're going to hit the books of CDFIs this summer, allowing us to actually go out and do the work of rebuilding. You know, it's, it's powerful. It, you know, a traditional CDFI program award is about, you know, around 300 million to have 1.25 billion to share as a field and to immediately replenish what we uh, need from this recovery to get out in our communities. It's a powerful moment. So this, is, this was big. And that's being combined with other kinds of support from other sources like banks and large corporations. Um, and there's some emerging fintech platforms to help investors target CDFIs in their portfolios. 
So CDFIs are a bit of an overnight success story, 30 years in the making. But what is needed to keep this momentum going and turbocharge it, if anything, to make this post-COVID recovery more just? So the first thing we needed to make the recovery, we need to not be a secret. And <laughs> having the attention of the vice president, of the secretary of the treasury, of major congressional leaders, that was the first thing we needed. We needed a little visibility. But the other thing we needed are partners. And what this government funds allow us to do now is multiply the partnerships. This is the hardest kind of money to raise. It's going, it's grant dollars. They go right onto our books so that we can now go out and raise more money. It allows smaller funds to finally say, we can borrow more to do more. And that's the power of this. This is like the the jet fuel that allows us <laughs> to run faster and fly faster. You know, it's the thing that will bring in more uh, folks. And that's what we're excited about. And, and I think the government is excited too. No one feels like the job is done. You know, Maxine Water talked about this is down payment money. This is, this is how we, you know, signal that now's the time to unlock what's been blocked in our economy. And we, the CDFIs, Robert Smith calls us the capillaries. We, we know how to get the money in deep into the economy. And so that's, I think, the significance of, of this moment. More partners and more fuel so that we can do the work that needs to be done. And that frankly, there aren't other financial institutions so well placed to do. So it sounds like this is gonna have a multiplier effect. And how will that also affect your justice fund? And, and what do you wanna do with that fund? So we said at the end of last year, after companies like Google and Twitter had invested their corporate cash with us, we said, let's go do more. And Twitter did $100 million. Google did $170 million of corporate cash. They both put in grants. And we said, if we could have a billion dollar fund where corporate treasuries would invest with us, we could be transformative to you know, over 250 CDFIs we could reach and we could reach very deeply. We know a lot about investing in CDFIs. We don't need all the companies in the world to figure that job out, we'll do it. And so we said, come join us, uh, follow the lead of these companies who've actually shared risk with us and joined us for 10 years. And that's, that's the moment. That's what we call the finance justice moment. And we're, we're really hoping, we're hoping more will join us soon. And um, I hope that the announcement of frankly, the federal resources will even enhance the chance to finance more justice. And so when you talk about the different kinds of capital that are needed and that you are receiving, what more do you need and which type specifically in order to do those things that you need to do in order to support the kind of just recovery we're talking about? most impactful capital has a couple of features. First, it's really long-term. Um, the companies that came with us are signing on for 10 years. Second, it's very low interest. We're sharing return. Uh, we're in an 80-20 mix, but companies are, are taking 2% 2 2 money on their five-year notes and 3% money on our 10-year notes. And that's a powerful thing. So we need it very long-term. We need it very low interest because we're gonna turn around 
and make loans to our customers at very fair rates. The other thing we need is what I call the stapler. We need grant funds that are stapled to these loans so that our CDFIs can also have more loan loss reserves, they can invest in the technology they need. It's the accelerant to be able to do more lending quickly into communities that have been so parched for funds. So the key thing here is it has been, there was easier things to do. You know, it's, it's, it's always complicated to be an investor, but uh, you know, we needed to go further than making deposits in a few institutions. We needed to get equity into our institutions. And frankly, we needed to reach broader in our community. OFN has 350 members. Many, many have assets of under 50 million. So those aren't the household names often, but they are the hands that can reach deep to minority businesses that can be on native reservations that are in rural areas of deep persistent poverty that are skilled lenders. They don't need to be huge. They need to be skilled to get the money to where it needs to go. And that's the that kind of money, we need investors who will stick with us for the long haul, the 10-year horizon. And we're really saying that the corporations who invested in their, with their cash, they're inventing a new kind of asset class. They're basically saying, while corporations are in a heavy cash position, they can put some of that cash now on loan through OFN or into our companies, into our CDFIs. And that's that hasn't really been done before. And I think you know, there are many choices treasurers will make, but we're saying make one of them with us. This is a good moment. Yes, we need muni bonds, but come with us as well. Have some of this be more what you're all about. Have more impact uh, in the communities that really need it. Uh, I, I applaud the call to action and hopefully those listening will heed it. And as you reflect on this moment, given your career spanning government, banking, philanthropy, you get it like few others. And your take on where we are today as a country and our possibility for systemic change and to turbocharge these capillaries so that we can have this third reconstruction, as Dr. Previn Barber calls it, have be different this time. I am just filled with hope. I feel like the things have come together. I, I started finance before, <laughs> before the real wave of personal computers. And, you know, we could, we could use one computer and add Lotus on it. You know, I, uh, I was surprised at the fax machine and I first got to banking. You know, I feel like the industry has evolved and the wealth gap still persists so deeply. And so what's changed for me is that we have a more sophisticated financial industry. We have a more sophisticated group of investors. And frankly, we have a more sophisticated group of community lenders. The community development financial institutions are 40 years old. And so we're sort of poised to use the platforms we've got. And it's more visible to us, the challenges that are in front of us and, you know, the banking business, the clarity around lending and getting it back is it's an old business. We actually know how to do this. And so I feel hopeful that there's no reason to be hidden anymore. When you have a secretary of a treasury and a vice president stand up with you and say, you're part of what we need to heal the whole economy. 
were no longer a sideshow, you know, something to be a feature story somewhere. Isn't it cool? You know, we figured out how to lend to low-income women. It feels like, no, we've acknowledged that if we don't lend to the low-income women, we're not going to have the economy we want, even here in the U.S. So I, I feel there are all the building blocks of a moment to do the systemic change. And it is often out of these horribly painful grief moments. We've lost too many people. We've seen too many life savings eviscerated. You know, we've seen too much pain. And it's kind of inspired the best of us. And that's the part that, you know, I know we're still in a divisive moment, but I find a lot of hope. And I think, uh, you know, the money that we're talking about was put together entirely bipartisan, you know, in the last days of the last administration. So I do have hope. I think uh, we got to do this. We can't take our eyes off the prize. And, uh, and this is the moment. Well, I'm holding on to hope with you. So thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. We cannot wait to see where the renewed focus on CDFIs takes us all. That's going to do it for your impact briefing this week. More all day at impactalpha.com. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Podcast listeners get $100 off their first subscription. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Podcast listeners get $100 off their first subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Make sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take care.